This is my life. There are many like it, but this one is mine. I used to be really troubled by the question of my identity. I don't mean this in the sense of adolescent finding myself or determining my role in society or anything like that. I really mean my identity. What the hell am I and what am I doing here? I guess I'm still troubled by this question, but I now tend to generalize it to consciousness in the universe. You might ask, why are we here? How did the universe come to possess us? We are beings, sure enough, but what kind of beings, and why are we concerned with the affairs of earthling mammals? Through meditation and psychedelics, people experience the disentanglement of self and connectedness. But long before I ever started meditating or dropped a dose of psilocybin, I noticed that I am not exactly identical to my body. I intuited that there must be a difference between being and being someone. I have had the occasion to explicitly distinguish between myself, the mind, and the human organism that I am associated with. I call him Jesse. Because, if I were not here to be his mind, that would nevertheless be his name. Humans have a cultural tendency to assign names to their children, and that one was given to Jesse. This distinction between Jesse and me is not a rhetorical device or a metaphorical description. This, as far as I can tell, is the real situation. I am not identical to Jesse. Jesse has arms and legs and a head. He has a heart and lungs and a brain. These are some of his component parts. He is a complex physical system of organic constituency. What am I then? Do I have parts? I am a conscious mind. My constituent parts are conscious contents. I am a complex physical system too, but I am not of organic constituency. I must be something fundamentally different. I am invisible, even to myself. That is why it is so difficult to discover what I am. But I said that my components are conscious contents. Surely I see them, at least the visual ones. The others I hear and taste and feel. Does this mean that they are not my parts? I don't think I could know them if they were not part of me. By what means could something which is not a part of me be known to me? I can guess what you are thinking. You are thinking that I see things out in the world. Clearly those things which I see are made known to me in this way, and those things out in the world are not me. Here's the error in that line of reasoning. Suppose I see a cat, and let's allow that there really is a cat in the world. Obviously the cat is not a part of me, and obviously I have come to know about the cat. But how? I cannot see the thing cat in the world. Light reflects off of the cat and impinges on Jesse's eyes. They are his, after all. I am not equipped with such things. Anyway, the light stimulates photoreceptors in the eyes. This causes physical things to occur in the retina. Biochemical events occur there. Action potentials are fired from one cell to another and then from the next layer to the next. Everything that occurs there has evolved. It is all biochemistry and follows physical laws. Ultimately, retinal ganglion cells fire action potentials that travel back along the optic nerve to a few locations in the brain. Not my brain, Jesse's brain. Most of these land in the thalamus where they trigger neurons to fire action potentials of their own, which stimulate the primary visual cortex. None of this is conscious. None of this has anything at all to do with me. Jesse's primary visual cortex sends action potentials to further cortical targets. These neurons are highly integrated with other cortical and thalamic neurons. What I mean is that these neurons are interconnected so that a stimulus anywhere among them can lead directly or indirectly to activities everywhere else among them. 
the neurons in this integrated lot have causal power over pretty short time frames on all the others. Now that the visual stimulus on Jesse's retina has begun to cause changes in the integrated thalamocortical system, I, yes I, see a cat. I see its position, its shape, its texture, its color, and its movement. What is this cat that I see? It is not made out of flesh and blood. Such things cannot be seen. It is made out of qualia. Jesse does not see a cat. Jesse cannot see. I see a cat. But the cat that I see is not the cat in the world. So you see, I know about the cat in the world, but I do not know the cat. I infer that there really is a cat. But maybe I'm watching a movie or having a dream. In such cases, I see a cat even though Jesse is not in the presence of one. I said that I could not know something which is not a part of me. The qualia are part of me. They are contents for my scrutiny. Neurons in the thalamocortical system exhibit causality upon other neurons, which exhibit causality on further neurons, and so on. There is a correlation between this causality and the experiences I have. I hypothesize that integrated causality is the key to consciousness. I am an emergent structure of integrated causality that exists across a short time frame. While this structure is maintained, I exist and experience what is happening within me. I have something like a body, but it is not Jesse's body. You could stimulate a part of Jesse's somatosensory cortex and I would feel it. It would occur in a particular location in the cortex, which is composed of topographically organized neurons. That topography is the one that determines my experiences, not the topography of the world outside. We assume that the topography of the brain is made to resemble the topography of the world outside the brain. This assumption makes some sense, but we cannot be sure. Whatever the organization of my structure, that determines how my experiences are and the organization of the thalamocortical system seems to give form to the organization of my mind. If I am composed of integrated causality across Jesse's thalamocortex, then it stands to reason I would be structured in the likeness of the thalamocortex. What does this suggest about my physical relationship to Jesse? We have established that Jesse exists, and I exist, but that we are not identical. What are we then? I am an emergent structure of his thalamocortex. I exist when he is awake or dreaming. He exists the whole time. Nevertheless, it seems reasonable to suggest I'm part of him. In the third episode of this podcast, I laid out why I think consciousness must serve a function. By that, I meant that the mind enables some capacities that a zombie human would not have. The argument went something like this. Either consciousness serves an adaptive function, or it is an epiphenomenal side effect of brain functions. A close inspection of my experiences favors the former. We could roughly divide the contents of consciousness into descriptive and valued. Visually descriptive qualia provide the positions, colors, shapes, and movements of the things in my environment. I see objects of various kinds, and I have feelings about them in a given context. So I might see an object that I could use as a tool, or that I could eat, or that might eat me. I can hear the sound of something approaching. I can smell that something is burning. These are all, roughly speaking, descriptive of things in the world as they pertain to survival and getting around the environment. The second type of contents are valued. These include the pleasure of success or satiation of appetite or sex, and they include pains, itches, fear, and disgust. The kinds of stimuli that produce all of these contents tend to cause consistent experiences. Our question was, does consciousness serve an adaptive function for the animal, or is it just a side effect? The brief survey of the different contents we might experience in consciousness gives us the key clue. 
In the case of me and Jesse, events in his environment and, and impinging on his body correlate with the qualia that I am aware of. When Jesse encounters something good for him, in the sense of evolved fitness, I experience pleasure, excitement, and so on. When Jesse encounters something dangerous to his survival, I experience fear or rage. When he encounters something of potential utility, I experience a sense of opportunity, interest, or curiosity. My thoughts are about what Jesse might do or benefit from. My emotions are in agreement with Jesse's conditions. Side effects of the nervous system could be like anything at all. Suppose that complex physical systems like human cortex necessarily have such side effects. Why should the side effects call up feelings and percepts that resemble the stimuli? It strikes me as exceedingly unlikely that brain processing of sensory data corresponding to a deadly snake should cause me to not only see what the snake looks like, but also feel threatened by it. It looks as if Jesse's brain conjures me up and provides me with actionable information. Not only that, it makes me care about Jesse's fitness goals and spend my time thinking and working toward bringing them about. How is this accomplished? In Affective Neuroscience, Jock Pangsep writes, quote, The seeking system can motivate animals to pursue a diversity of distinct rewards in the environment. The nervous system does most of this automatically, with no obvious deliberation. Many bodily needs access the seeking system and thereby arouse appetitive of search tendencies that motivate animals to approach and learn about available resources. It would have been wasteful for evolution to have constructed separate search and approach systems for each bodily need. The most efficient course was for each need detection system to control two distinct functions. A generalized, non-specific form of appetitive arousal and various need-specific resource detection systems. In addition, learning would increase the efficiency with which the seeking system could guide to appropriate goal objects. This is in fact what transpires in the mammalian brain. Thus, resource depletions within the body can lead to a generalized arousal of seeking behaviors regardless of the specific regulatory imbalances that exist, and specific need states that sensitize distinct consumatory reflex tendencies, e.g. licking, biting, chewing, and swallowing, and key support mechanisms such as sensory, perceptual, and memory fields relevant for their specific needs. By the interplay of these processes, a generalized search system can efficiently guide animals to relevant environmental goal objects. In other words, the non-specific seeking system, under the guidance of various regulatory imbalances, external incentive cues, and past learning, helps take thirsty animals to water, cold animals to warmth, hungry animals to food, and sexually aroused animals toward opportunities for orgasmic gratification. Existing evidence suggests that the seeking system is under the control of internal homeostatic receptor systems that detect various bodily imbalances. This is suggested by the fact that many imbalances can modify the rate at which animals self-stimulate lateral hypothalamic LH electrode sites. For instance, hunger reduces the current threshold needed to sustain LH self-stimulation, which also increases the rate at which animals behave. Similar effects can be evoked by thirst, cold, and various sex hormones, even though these have not been studied as thoroughly as the effects of food deprivation." Unquote. Think about verbs like motivate and incentivize. Who exactly is being motivated? Who has to be incentivized here? Jesse? Impossible. Jesse can't be motivated to do anything. I am the one being motivated. Jesse is the one who needs water. I could give a shit, but evolution has hit upon a means to make this my problem. I am thirsty. This implies that neuronal mechanisms have been fidgeted with to produce arrangements of causality that bring me in line. 
In another section, Pangsep writes, quote, In the old psychological terminology, the bodily need detection systems of the brain were thought to generate drives. But the use of that concept has diminished, as we have come to realize that such a broad, abstract, intervening variable cannot be credibly linked to unitary brain processes. Indeed, it has been recognized that at a logical level, the notion of drive may be redundant for a coherent explanation of behavior. Incentive concepts may suffice, especially since specific deprivation states primarily facilitate an animal's response to specific external incentive stimuli. Here we will use the concept of a bodily need state, as opposed to drive, to indicate the presence of regulatory imbalances. For instance, need states such as energy depletion lead to dramatic increases in motor arousal only when animals are in the presence of incentive stimuli, namely those stimuli that predict the availability and characteristics of relevant primary rewards, such as food. At a phys physiological level, increased arousal can be measured by the intensification of reflexes as well as neural changes. It should also be noted that there are problems with the traditional concept of incentive as defined by the attributes of quantity, quality, and delay of reward. If the incentive process is defined only with respect to the external qualities of rewards, we may tend to overlook important properties of brain systems that evolve to respond to these attributes. In other words, the incentive process, as instantiated by specific properties of neural circuits, may respond to certain properties of external rewards so as to integrate an affective motivational state within the brain. Once the incentive stimuli have interacted with such circuits, the aroused psychological response is only indirectly related to the outward properties of rewards." Unquote. You see, it doesn't matter what the thing out there in the world is. If it is food or water or whatever, it only matters what happens in the brain. The only reason I care about water is because of its satiating effect in me. Moreover, it is evident that this approach to achieving fitness for organisms such as humans is an effective one. How shall we get this animal to do all of this stuff? That's going to require a lot of neural networks. I don't think we'll have enough room for all of them. Oh, not to worry. We'll just conjure up a being to handle all of that. Now all we have to do is torture him into doing what we want. And I guess we can reward him sometimes if he's good. It's a brilliant scheme, really. What do you think of this hypothesis? Conscious beings like you and me use drugs and alcohol as a means to please ourselves, not to benefit our human organisms. These compounds, which exist in nature, allow us to take advantage of the brain's structure to force it to give us good feelings. We hack in with alcohol or benzodiazepines to shut down the very networks that produce our anxiety and displeasure. Furthermore, these drugs are not good for the fitness of the human animal. The human animal, and therefore we, know this, but we don't care. The reason for this is that the only reason we care about anything is because we have been stricken into line and forced to assimilate the values that evolution constructed for us. Drugs, therefore, allow us to force that evolved system into giving us pleasurable qualia. Does the rat fitted with an electrode that stimulates a hypothalamic pleasure and excitement network care that it is dying? Why does it keep pressing the button and self-stimulating? Why doesn't it go eat something, get some rest, have a drink of water? perhaps because it is conscious. The mind of the rat doesn't care about food and water and sex and sleep, the prerogatives of the rodent organism. The mind of the rat only ever cared about the positive feelings and the cessation of negative ones. Returning to the question of the day, what is my relationship to Jesse? This is really a rewording of the hard problem of consciousness centered around my particular case. Am I a component of Jesse? 
like his heart or his legs? In a sense, I must be. An emergent property is something which has capabilities that can't be reduced to its parts. But does that mean it is no longer a property of the physical system? It couldn't mean that. On the other hand, our relationship, mine and Jesse's, might be best described as a symbiosis. Jesse acts according to nature and nurture toward fitness. I act in accordance with his evolution too, because my content has been sculpted accordingly. If I have a measure of willful control, which at least seems to be the case, I also get to steer Jesse around for the benefit of my own goals. For the most part, though, I can't really outsmart the system that produced me. It's not up to me what I think feels good or captures my interest or gives me satisfaction. The situation looks a lot like a classic symbiosis. But maybe, just maybe, and this is stretching credulity, one of us is parasitic upon the other. In that case, there is only one of us that could be the parasite. Me, you say? No way. I act on behalf of Jesse. I suffer his failures. I celebrate his successes. I serve a function for Jesse every single day. If it has to be one of us, then Jesse is the parasite. Suppose I existed as part of some great spiritual ether, minding my own business in some parallel dimension. Jesse's brain, according to a scheme of evolution, conspired to co-opt me into service. Wherever I was prior to this, I was not concerned with human life. I was not hungry, or tired, or depressed, or worried. Now I am yoked to the fate of Jesse, and made to endure his shitty existence. I am conscripted into servitude. If I want peace or happiness now, I'll have to provide Jesse with his needs. And as soon as one of his plentiful needs is met, I'll be damned if another won't rise up to replace it.